Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital editor. Over the past two issues of the magazine, we focused on the living cinema, affirming the vibrance of the medium and assessing what it looks like now. However, part of that examination entails acknowledging that film isn't the dominant mass art form it was in the 20th century. The only constant is change, which is part of what we discuss in this episode. I was joined by New York Film Festival director and filmmaker Kent Jones and regular film comment contributor Nick Pinkerton to discuss Ken's piece in our November-December issue on the marginalization of cinema. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor. Today I'm joined by... Uh, Nick Pinkerton, regular Film Comment contributor and general jack-of-all-trades. Kent Jones, director of the New York Film Festival, Film Comment contributor. Today we're going to be discussing, Kent, a piece you wrote for the September-October issue, expanding upon it. Uh, which is about the marginalization of cinema. Obviously, as it always is, it's popular to sort of come up and say, oh, cinema's dead, and here's why, because, you know, Suicide Squad didn't get enough B.O. Um, (laughs) But your piece is a little different in that, you know, it's sort of arguing that, not that just, oh, this is the death of cinema, but that cinema in our current media landscape has sort of lost its place as the popular art form. And what's particularly interesting to me, and I think sort of what sets it apart from other pieces that are dealing with how cinema has changed, is that you begin your piece by talking about specifically how even within the film industry itself, people don't, they just don't take it as seriously or have sort of the, the former bastions of respect for, let's say, a director. That doesn't exist anymore. So could you talk a little bit more about that and I guess sort of why you feel it's important to approach it from that? angle well the whole idea of the death of cinema is ridiculous there's there is yes there, there, could, there could never be such a thing but what there could be and what has really happened is a marginalization of it in the sense that directors are marginalized now is there such a thing as a good film made by a not so good director yeah depends on the circumstances though you know in the 30s there were a lot of them i don't know what kind of I'm not, I'm not familiar with all of the films of Archie Mayo or Roy Del Ruth, but I do know that the movies that they made in the 30s at Warner Brothers are, you know, a world apart from what they did, you know, from like Alligator People. That's a, that's a movie by Archie or Roy Del Ruth. Anyway, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. The point is that it's like, yes, it's true, but by and large, what you're talking about is, it's a very simple thing. I mean, you know, it's it's an art form that's made by someone behind the camera. It's not, you know made in any other way and it's made by someone who's shaping the what you're seeing not just someone who's writing down on paper however that's you know that that brings up other issues but i think that for a variety of reasons some of them having to do with the way that the agencies became more powerful starting in the 80s with CAA some of it having to do with the fact that actors became more powerful because of the agencies and in tandem with them in determining what projects were made and what weren't uh, you know you now have a situation where the idea of cinema is sort of frowned upon to begin with I mean that's why I very pointedly used that term in the title And I think also what makes your piece interesting now, specifically at this time of year, let's say, is not just because of the election, where it Mm. seems like everyone who never seemed to have a political opinion in their life now really feels the need to go go to social media and express themselves, not just that, but also that it's the start of award season and that that is actually a, a season of the year now and that um, people take it very seriously and you know talk in terms of like, if Moonlight doesn't get certain awards and Manchester by the Sea does, it is a message that, you know, the characters or the themes that are being explored in Moonlight are being frowned upon or not being recognized. And it's, all you know, as if movies don't matter unless they have awards attached to them. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're not, you're not on Twitter. You're yeah, Im- but immunized. That's not, but that's not new. No. I mean, you know, um, I, I remember how obsessed people were with the idea that, you know, Brockback Mountain should get a screening at the Bush White House. You know, why? I don't know. These things are all tangled together. They all they all kind of run together. Obviously, if you're talking about award season, you're talking about a lot of self-promotion, and you're talking about this, you know, obsessions with taglines and 
the social media presence, and then obviously that leads to thoughts of the election. And, you know, also, as I'm sure all three of us would agree, without any controversy whatsoever, it's rare that a really good movie wins awards. And when it does happen, it generally happens by accident or because there's a an alignment between, you know, what was popular and what struck a chord with people and what was actually really good. And that's part of what I'm talking about, because now I think that there's a there are two parallel tracks and one of them is movies that tend to get awards. And the other one is movies that are made by people who are really serious artists. And um, it's very the movies that are on the first track of the movies that tend to deal with issues and, you know, win awards and have a lot of bigger actors in them are movies that uh, a lot of festivals have wound up embracing. And so, you know, it's as if there were an alternate, you know, it's another kind of movie to me. Yeah. It's another kind of movie. The not as good kind as the kind that's made by somebody who's really shaping a vision behind the camera. Well, the, the point that you dwell on uh, is really the decimation of the good movie. And I thought of, you know, I think in Andrew Sarris's uh, The American Cinema, this is kind of the, the very argument that he puts forward for the popular American cinema is the fact that it dominates the middle range, I think is the phraseology that he uses. And the fact... Very generalized phraseology. It's very funny. Yeah. (laughs) But the fact, uh, and I I believe as you put it forth, that it's not necessarily a matter of the greats being disappearing so much as that middle range being picked clean, not just in your assessment in the United States, but in the international scene as a whole. What do you think? I mean, it's very hard for me to evaluate outside of the American multiplex. I mean, we don't see, obviously, a great deal of the popular cinema of Israel or Russia. So, I mean, I can only judge from very small sample sizes. I definitely have felt and i know that i'm not alone with this a increasing feeling of total alienation from what is going on at the multiplex i don't know if i sat down and crunched the numbers if they're really if the highs are not as high as they used to be i can only sort of speak to a generalized feeling that financial highs Oh, I mean, the actual, like, payoff that I get out of keeping up with what will, for oh, lack of a better... Of keeping up with yeah, that stuff. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, my relationship with, you know, the popular cinema is not going to be the same as it was when I was 16 years old. And I don't know what to chalk up to just general disillusionment and... uh you know, catabolism and decay. Uh, These are all, I'm sure, factors. But, I mean, it's not an unusual experience to go to the multiplex for me and watch a dozen trailers and sit there thinking with, as everyone marches by, why on earth would any reasonable person for one second consider going to to get out of here? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, the trailers are one thing because the trailers are bad themselves as you know experiences two and a half minute or three minute experiences to sit through that's one thing and they're uniformly the same you know the same and uniformly so and they're indistinguishable from the commercials that come when the lights are still on right yeah you know but then at the same time there's also when you're watching them nine times out of ten you're saying to yourself okay this is a movie that is only made to turn a profit it's not made for any other reason. There's no other, you know, conceivable reason for making, you know, Alvin X and, and the y. chipmunks chip. Yes, rack. sure. <laughs> Take your pick. And I mean, you know, and, <laughs> that's and my pick. Yeah, and there, and there are many of them, and there are many. It it would appear that there are more and more of them. You know, I don't know for a fact, but it certainly looks that way whenever I'm cruising by the multiplex. Um, and the things that are made by serious artists are fewer and fewer in number, and it's more and more difficult for them to get them made. You know, I'm a big fan of The Lost City of Z. I really love the movie, but I think that if 
James Gray had made it in an earlier era, he would have had a higher budget to work with. But, you know, um, that's the reality of the moment. And also, uh, Lost City of Z is established IP, intellectual property. You know, a lot of what used to be middle brow was not necessarily based on a true story. And now we're sort of locked into, you know, adaptations of books, you know, bestsellers that like book club books, uh, not not pissing on book clubs, but you know what I mean. Um, and also, you know, we and then there's, you know, based on true story films. And then there's also the Marvel Disney machine, which seems to really sort of have perfected in a way that DC Comics and Warner Brothers just cannot wrap their heads around, which is kind of almost admirable at this point, the way that they just cannot make like a decent comic book movie. But, you know, the Marvel machine, the Disney machine, where it's just like a very standardized, where it's like, we're going to have these stars, you know, we're going to get Lin-Manuel Miranda to write all the songs for this, <laughs> for this, you know, like this kids film and just sort of ruthless, but it's also like, it's a very exacting process. And it's, it's not, again, that's nothing new necessarily. Obviously, you know, when they were doing Ziegfeld Follies, putting that on the screen that was you know that was all established talent in a certain respect too taken but it's like there's so much money in in terms of like PR and sort of like expectation put on those that seems new that and it doesn't really allow for other things to breathe or have a space in a way that they used to well, when you say Ziegfeld Falls you mean the movie from the 40s right right, by Min right. By or, Vincent the, Minnelli, or directed by Vincent Minnelli but that's a product yeah yeah or just any of those review films, that, that mm -hmm. genre. That. Yeah, right. But the difference is, a friend of mine refers to as the wind tunnel tested. I mean, in other words, ruthless, but not as ruthless as Alvin and the Chipmunks right. know, or whatever. I mean, you know. Yeah, because it's like somebody, like even like Lady Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'll never refer to it as Ghostbusters. It's Lady Ghostbusters because mm -hmm. that's what it, that's what they wanted it to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, I love Paul Feig. You know, I loved Freaks and Geeks. But he brags about how that movie was tested, like how all the jokes were approved by an audience. And right. it's like, what a craven way to make a film. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, mm -hmm. what? Like, be, have faith in your material. Have faith. Know that the jokes that you're telling are good enough that will make people laugh. Yeah. I mean, you know, testing with an audience is it's good to show things to an audience. You get into a, right. you know, you get into your tunnel and, you know, it's good to go out and see what's working and what isn't. And I know filmmakers who do it and it's, you know, it serves a specific purpose. But um, the idea of actually using the audience as consensus yeah you know tester seems to me then you're talking about something other than making movies i i've noticed that there are a couple of paths that sort of state-of-the-art addresses tend to take neither of which yours does uh, but on one hand you have oftentimes the sort of clickbaity pieces where if box office happens to be down for a year the cinema's dead if the box office is up for the year movies are back people guess what which are completely <laughs> divorced from any you know, sort of historical contextualization or understanding mm -hmm. of how things cycle around on the other hand i've seen many pieces which will take into account historical precedent and draw historical analogy as to, you know, point out that indeed there is nothing new under the sun. And this, well, certainly, uh, I think of more use than the previous example, tends to block out the fact that there are things that are very different about the popular cinema from decade to decade mm -hmm. and year to year. And in a commentariat that tends to sort of error on one side or another, it, it sometimes makes it difficult for us to explore these nuances to say that 2016 isn't, I mean, to use your example, 97, yet that these differences, while they're not completely uh, breaking with historical precedent, are real and they are worth exploring. And you can do it without being chicken little about it without saying every every theater is going to dry up and disappear and blow away or <laughs> turn into internet storage in the next you know, three years. Just a place for land parties. Yeah, I mean, really what makes these questions so fraught is this idea of the popular art form, right? 
and this obsessive idea, the obsessive return to it as what sets cinema apart. And yes, that's true. It is what sets cinema apart. Novels, of course, can be a popular art form and, you know, poems have been a popular art form at different moments, you know, um, in the history of this country and they still are in, you know, um, other parts of the world, but not here. But I think it's the idea of what does it mean when people say hear popular art form? Well, what it used to mean was something that offered a perfect, you know, mirror. Andre Bazan, when he wrote about, you know, American cinema has this way of reflecting back on itself, you know, in American society is, is it reflecting back on itself, watching itself. It's like, yeah, to a certain extent that was true. At a, at a certain point that stopped or it started to thin out after the studio system was over. And when you start, when cinema really started to become a matter of lone individual voices, a lot of them, then, you know, things started to change. But I think that, you know, now I just feel, it doesn't feel like rocket science to me. It just feels like that's either on the way out or kind of over already. You know, I, I don't really see it. I see people going to the movies and turning out in large numbers for certain things, but I don't see it as the endless give and take that it was. That doesn't seem like it's... Yeah, and I mean, it's also worth noting, I think, you know, the, the, the system as presently constituted exists not because the executive class don't know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They're making enormous pots of money. But one, I mean, one very important issue is cinema as a popular art. It's perhaps in some respects more popular than ever, but not, say, domestically, and it is not pitched to us. And that is a whole other can of worms, certainly. But that's why I chose the word cinema, because I do feel like that moment has arrived where you have to say, okay, what is and what isn't. Well, and the I never schism really between where, where popular art and the yeah. popular breaks off in one direction and the yeah. art breaks off in another. Yeah, and that wasn't true even 10 years ago. You, had, you still had a lot of you know, give and take. I don't see that give and take anymore. Well, I mean, Nick, you've written about this before a little bit, but... I think it's also interesting to note how people, what cinemas are, like the actual uh, physical theater is mm-hmm. now, because so many theaters have incorporated this model of restaurants. Sure. And not not just having a restaurant connected to the theater, but literally you get your food as you're watching it. You sing along with the movie. There are these expanded cinematic experiences that are saying, like, this movie isn't enough. Like, we sure. have to do something else. Well, I mean, there's this, I mean the the note that you hear struck by anyone who is working in any programming capacity is how do we get young people into the theater and a big part of that i think is trying to figure out how you can make it a social and sexy activity Even instead of <laughs> instead of the solitary <laughs> sad thing that it in fact is yes. I, I only partly mean that but yeah i think a lot of this does speak to an idea that like movie going on its own doesn't quite suffice it's also of course having to compete with living rooms yeah and you know hence the fact that you have these cinemas that basically have barco loungers in them and then (laughs) some little somebody comes skittering by and gives you a basket of tater tots uh while you're watching Lancelot de Lac or whatever (laughs) um yeah that's certainly telling of something but the problem with the living room is that the technology is moving in a direction that does not harmonize well with pre-2015 era images. <laughs> That's a big problem. You know, Reed Morano, the cinematographer, is circulating a petition to try to get the people that are manufacturing the monitors to change their menus and their settings so that, you know, you can get something that does justice to the shop around the corner. And Instead so that of when having you, the motion smoothing. You have the motion Gosh. smoothing and then also, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, don't, I have a, um, a really, I'm very happy with a, this, this rear projection thing that I have. They don't make it anymore, but Scott Foundas recommended it to me and it's been great. It's one of the later ones. 
and it really looks good. But when I look at monitors, you know, in other people's homes, I'm just horrified because trying to get it to look like something other than, you know, a football game um, mm. is really, really hard. Well, and also I think people don't realize that when you buy a TV that the settings are all jacked so that if you need to display right. it, yeah. like I remember very vividly at NYU in grad school, we were watching Mary and no one realized that the colors were wrong until I was like, I really don't think this movie is supposed to look like yeah. this. And I, and I like change the colors and it's like oh wait now this isn't like a screaming horrible where experience where all the people are orange like this looks like a real movie yeah. again but yeah. i mean it's weird that you know so much of our experience is mediated through visual images through videos you know there are, are vending machines with videos on them and yet yeah. there isn't a sort of a push to have that sort of media literacy both in terms of like well what is a shot but then also like well what how should an image look yeah you know and then you also have a, a uniformity of the size of the image because right. everything now, the push is to squeeze everything into that 177 or 178, you know, aspect ratio of the mm -hmm. TVs. And, you know, when that whole thing went down with Barry Lyndon and mm -hmm. the Blu-ray and the fact that it was the 178 and it's just, you had this documentation of the greatest perfectionist in the history of the arts, let alone the cinema, Stanley Kubrick saying to projectionists, my movie is shot in the 1.66 aspect ratio. And, you know, his, his assistant saying, oh, no, yeah. I remember it was 178. Just what the what's going on? And then I think that also you have the grain taken out. I think, you know, I've looked at that Blu-ray and it's just it looks a little bit smoother than what I remember. Well, this this broaches on something that I'd like to ask you about, Kent, because we're talking, of course, you know, about the fact that cinema in the main is something that we are all watching at home and certainly people other than you know those of us in this room are even more so watching at home and the fact that we are uniformly receiving all sorts of different let's call it lens-based art through the same medium so we're watching our shows we are watching films you know we're watching for example the shop around the corner we're watching you know funny cat videos all on the same screen and how then do we define cinema when it's taken out of this it, this hierarchy of images is sort of collapsed and it's being received in the same way that all of these other things are and one of the points that you touch on is this idea of compression as being something that individuates cinema from, say, series television. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to hear you expand on that a little bit because I, it, it interests me that everybody basically knows what a movie is. We basically know what we're talking about <laughs> when we're talking about a movie. But at the same time, the picture gets a little foggier when we're using the exact same equipment to access this you know, feature film as we are, all of these other things, all of which are lens-based, uh, so on and so forth. But the hierarchy hasn't collapsed, not really, because, I mean, it's it, it might feel like it's collapsed when you're watching Citizen Kane and then going to a cat video, but it really hasn't because Citizen Kane and the cat video are still leagues apart. They're leagues apart because, you know, Citizen Kane is a work that's been conceived and executed and, you know, sent out into the world, you know, with a shaping vision and the cat video is somebody picking up something and recording something. But I mean, you know, on the other hand, you have people who are inspired by that, but that's different. I mean, they're inspired by it in different ways. They're inspired to imitate it so that you have diary films or you have movies that are very, very reality and or duration based, you know, and that try to use the texture of ongoing reality and droning on and on of the digital image to their advantage. And I mean, you know, but, but again, that's a difference. It's, 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 if there's a choice behind the camera to do something other than show something to people, then, you, you know, you're talking about a difference. But, but I mean, what about, let's say, prestige television, where, I mean, you can, I mean, if we're speaking about specifically visual terms, like every still I ever see from like 
prestige television, you know, first of all, they're all dramas, yeah. which encourages this is serious. There are very few long form comedies like those are sort of those have sort of been ghettoized, which yeah. is, I think, really unfortunate because uh, I like to laugh. I'm not so fucking serious. Yeah. And then also that, you know, when you look at stills from these shows, everyone is standing like they're in like a grunge video from the 90s mm-hmm. where they're like very like stern and serious. And like it's just like everything about it is encouraging you to take it as seriously as let as citizen came mm-hmm. and being like this is a momentous work of art that right. you need to sit down and watch all 13 well, hours i mean of. this came up at the new york film Critics circle uh voting when oj made in america which is you know made for espn though it did have a theatrical run right. and which uh received uh, best documentary and there was some chatter on mm-hmm. the internet about you know is this a documentary should this be counted in the same terms mm-hmm. as whatever else might have been up for consideration or do we need to draw these distinctions Mm -hmm. i I find that a sort of difficult question to answer yeah because i mean if you go and want to go down to artistic intent ezra edelman didn't want it didn't conceive of it being cut up in the way that it was but it was cut up that way and that's how people saw it but then i mean but then people also saw it on like on demand so, and then people but, saw it like, you have, some, you have like you know don siegel's the killers made yeah. for television which would it have been television had it not received a theatrical release right and these are these are questions that i have a little bit of difficulty with and i mean obviously in the case of the killers i'm talking about something 51 years old so they're not new questions yeah. but perhaps they seem to more urgently demand answers yeah i mean I guess one way of, you know, answering what you're bringing up, which is the the, the television example, Violet, mm-hmm. is O.G. Made in America seems like something separate, by the way, because it's finite and the duration, I haven't seen it, but the duration of it seems like something that was um, more than just like, I want to create an epic TV, you know, documentary series. Right. But I think that, uh, you know, House of Cards, take the first four episodes the first two are directed by David Fincher. The next two are not. All I can tell you is that, you know, everything else aside, the difference between the two episodes that he directed and the ones that he didn't direct to me was dramatic, mm-hmm. like really dramatic. Suddenly I started to see things that were made from a style template right. as opposed to things that were, no matter that he's the one who set the style template, that doesn't matter. The point is that it's like, you know, I was looking at something that was a fully organized, you know, to the point where I can remember the shot of there's 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 a moment when Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright are, are sitting across from each other and she's got her, you know, it's the Lady Macbeth moment and she's crosses her legs and her foot, you know, is pointed down her bare foot and it looks like a weapon. There's something about the way that it's the timing of the way that her foot goes down. That's directorial sensitivity and that's a shaping vision as opposed to what I saw after, which was following the template, Kevin Spacey, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, Twin Peaks also suffered from this. Twin Peaks suffered from it in a big way. You know, I mean, I remember that very well. And then suddenly when he would reappear as a director, David Lynch, blasted back into, you know, onto earth. So it was a very, you know, that's, that's telling to me. The one that for me, the wire is, is sort of like, to me, an example of something that is more like what happened in American cinema in the thirties. But even the wire started to get a little tiresome uh, after a certain point. The lighting started to get a little on the film noir-ish side sometimes, and you had characters that seemed a little too fanciful, and then in the fifth season it became this kind of TV show. Right. You know, it was a good one, but it was, you know, but a TV show. And um, But that seemed more like, you know, the hard day at the factory model of, mm. you know, movie making, and, you know, um, I... I but that's an exception you find a a positive affirmative note to end on which i would like to be able to feel as you as you seem to this uh, to to have this idea that the loss of the popular from the art is not a insuperable loss and that 
it could be, uh, I believe, sal- the salvation of the form or could be a agent of regeneration. But, I, I mean, I feel it very, very deeply, the absence of that audience. You compare it, you know, potentially to being something like the modern dance or poetry and have an idea that this isn't necessarily a bad thing and maybe it's just something I'm having (laughs) taking my sweet time and coming to terms with but you know as somebody who kind of came to this to this medium because it seemed to be where there was a certain amount of you know one of the lively arts to Mm -hmm. use the you know Seldes phraseology and that there seemed to still be a certain heat there that it hadn't entirely succumbed to museumification. I find the affirmation heartening, but I I, I still do feel just a, a, a deep mournfulness about the inability to feel excited about the multiplex. Well, it's, it's a tremendous loss. I mean, anybody who lived through it, you know, you're younger than I am, but it's just, you know, you... You guys both know, you know, the experience of seeing movies in the theater, in a packed theater, you know, that it's, and when the movie's good, that there is this kind of call and response that, you know, happens that, but I guess, you know, I'm not saying that the interaction between what the works that are created in the audience is going to go away. How could that possibly happen? But on the other hand, well... Yeah, we we were always bent on calling it an art form, which it is, and this is the moment when the art form becomes something different, and it'll find another way of sustaining itself, you know, and it'll probably take a while for it to be. I mean, I suspect that what's going to happen is that you you'll get these kind of private circuits of things that'll you know, and, and people will be seeing movies. I don't even know if a museum is where they'll be seeing them. I'm not sure, you know, but I'm, I, I, but I, but I do think that there's, it's a different relationship and the loss of the old relationship is a very sad one. If you experienced it, if you didn't experience it, you're probably better off, you know, for the young person that Coppola envisioned when he said, you know, cinema will only really become an art form when it becomes as, you know, um, when you can make a movie for the same price that you would pay for a pencil and paper, that's pretty much, you know, the, that moment's pretty much here, but it's the relationship that's different. Yeah. I mean, the one analogy you draw is, or at least you make mention to, you know, uh, rock music and the idea that it's somewhat a less sexy career option when such a thing as a rock star doesn't really exist anymore. And I mean, we all know, how you know what a blip rock music in the sort of classical sense of it small band combos we all know what a blip that is in terms of what people are talking about uh, you know, in terms of popular music that being said there are rock bands playing all across the country every single night in every city of any size to yeah. very healthy crowds of people who are still responsive to that uh, and to whom that that is a still you know, important and breathing you know, form of art. And I mean, there are a lot of people making movies and going to the movies too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, I, mean yeah. I, th- I think it's a, a, a Bordwellism, you know, no art form once created has disappeared from the earth. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he's absolutely on target, but I mean, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is about to make a movie in London, you know, with Daniel Day Lewis. It's just like, it's, it's, you know, that's great news for everybody, but it's harder for, people like him to make the movies it's harder for him people like him to get enough money to make the movies the way that they want to they're generally put in a position where it's like well we'll give you five million dollars less than what you're asking for that's so common you're just sort of like why (laughs) you know if you if you don't want to give me exactly what i want and the difference to you is you know what's what's your reason then why are you doing that but that's become very common it's a kind of like a form of oh well you know you're the artist so you have to learn a lesson that kind of thing you know i think that is it going to get harder yeah it's not going to get easier it's not going to get easier to make movies that cost over a certain amount of money and i think that 
that's a loss too. You know, it's Marty Scorsese said, you know, he's like, my way of making movies is over. Mm. It is just done. The fact that it, they still give me money to make movies is great. But it's just like, you know, I am beyond a dinosaur, mm-hmm. you know, and all of my friends, same thing, you know. And this is where I have to, by the way, you know, hand it to Paul Schrader, who's somebody who is really like adapted, you know. Whatever you can say about the canyons, you have to say nobody. I can't imagine anybody else from his generation doing that, mm-hmm. making a movie for fifty grand, mm-hmm. you know. But anyway, I I think that it's just the idea of what a movie is is going to be different. The idea of what the experience of watching it and what the idea of the audience is is going to be different. And yeah, I do think it's going to be closer to the kind of connoisseurship that one sees at an audience for dance or poetry reading. That's a bummer. But it's not. But it's not. <laughs> I'm a bad, sorry. <laughs> but it's not a bad thing. I mean, I remember. It's just a different thing. I remember right. when I was in university reading. Uh, I, I guess it was Ray Carney uh, who had written something where he was talking about the idea of cinema that was run along the terms of you know the Metropolitan Opera or something like that, where a small, uh, dedicated audience who was very interested in sort of hard artwork would pay a hundred dollars a ticket in order to support and nurture the sort of work that they were interested in and at the time and still i must admit like that idea was just horrifying to me because i then is now retain a strong attachment to the low origins of what i believe to be a very high art and i it's, you know, as I say, it's it's still a difficult one for me to wrap my head around. Because uh, yeah. we're not, we're not yeah. far from that, really, What for what he proposed. Because, I mean, when you take into consideration things like Kickstarter, well, what is that? That, mm-hmm. is, th- that is effectively a $100, $500 ticket. Hiding to the art. Film but festivals aren't that far away from that. I mean, they you know, are. Because I, I actually want to talk about film festivals because I feel like yeah. the change, the way that film festivals have changed, even over the past... 10 years is so huge. Like, I mean, I was doing some research on Sundance and just looking at, you know, what titles were winning, what titles were sort of worthy. They completely fall off. There's a real drop off after 2006, not just in terms of like, oh, this is a good movie, but just in terms of like cultural impact, say for something like Blackfish, which, you know, really hit SeaWorld where it hurt. But um, It's our Uncle Tom's cabin, Blackfish. (laughs) (laughs) But... The the but then the, and I and I had to stop and I had to ask myself, well, is this just because I don't have enough space between myself and a film that was made in two thousand six versus something like Poison, where I have enough space to be like that's a classic, or Daughters of the Dust? But that's crap because those are actually really good movies and the things that have come that it's not a it's, it's not a question of like these things becoming classics that there is just like a real mm-hmm. to borrow from Andre Bazin aesthetic erosion. Mm. Perversely borrow from Amazon. Well, in part because of the loss of what Nick is talking about, because people just don't have the chance to work as much as they did. That's that's yeah. one thing. And generally, when people had the chance to work, they were working on stuff that was like you know the kinds of movies that Michael Powell started making, quota quickies, or the kinds of movies that Edgar Ulmer or Robert Siodmak or you know even Nick Ray labored away at you know something not rebel without a cause but a woman's secret or flying leathernecks or um, born to be bad you know i mean and so for instance if you hear if you read out of preminger's comments about the very interesting films that he made in the 40s after laura mm-hmm. i'm thinking specifically of daisy kenyon i don't think he has much to say about it you know or you know about his relationship with Dana Andrews. I mean, they made what five movies together, four or five. I can't remember, you know, but so they obviously so okay. They were put together by Daryl Zanuck, but they obviously had some kind of something happened and, you know, or Jacques Turner, you know, the way that he worked. And so the loss of that, that's, that's really sad or the loss of the kind of opportunity that all those directors had who started with Roger Corman, you know, we're here in, South Dakota making ski troop attack. As long as we're here, we might as well make another one, Monty. Go out and invent a monster and, you know, figure out how to make a movie and see in a week. And he made the Beast from Haunted Cave, Monty Hellman, you know. 
or you know go you know creature from the haunted sea is too short we need to put some more stuff on it so it'll play long enough to to get on commercial television go shoot some stuff with robert town and figure it out that kind of thing you know yeah, i mean without that atelier model or something close to it it becomes very difficult to maintain you know exactly what you address yeah. that sort of median level of quality yeah uh yeah and i mean you know corman was associated has i mean in the last you know 20 years he's been associated with tons and tons of movies i don't know what any of those movies are i've never seen you know they're by people who become who come and go and they're not you know, they're unremarkable. Then you realize that you have kind of a divorce from film history, from a sense of film history and from that lineage. Mm-hmm. And um, at this point, it's just, it's about as as old and dusty as, you know, a 1910 Christmas card. I mean, um, yeah, it, oddly enough, I, I was able to speak to Corman for a bit at, at Locarno this year and was, you know, asking him, this being in the middle of an absolutely catastrophic in both financial and artistic terms summer for the American uh, box office. Electorate. Yeah, box, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not yeah. to speak of that, yeah. uh, like, you know, what would a young Roger Corman be doing? And there's nothing equivalent in terms of, you know, that drive-in circuit that he milked does not yeah. exist anymore. It would be straight to video or yeah. it would be, you know, Netflix original programming, yeah. but that outlet is simply not there. I think a young Roger Corman would be like um, in a tech startup. Mm-hmm. I don't think he'd be having, I don't think he'd have anything to do with movies probably, you know, I don't know. Or opening a restaurant, you know, I guess that leads to the question of television, which you brought up, Violet. And I mean, I think it's just, which is supposedly where all the excitement is happening, but which is not true, right? Because I'm sorry if you cannot, if vinyl, a show that is about the most interesting period of rock and roll history, sucks that bad. Sorry, there's no, there's no golden age of television. Sorry, not the first time I said that, but <laughs> but I think that it's, I think it has more to do with this. It is this question of concision. The thing is that what television has done, and I mean, everybody said it, it's just that it shifts the control away from the director to the showrunner. And what that means is shifting it away from someone who's doing creative work to someone who's more of a manager and setting templates. You know, with the caveat that Matthew Weiner is probably, you know, there's real artistry at work in that show and, and... He's an anomaly, though. He like, is an anomaly, yeah. I, I think. I mean, you know, but that's that's a guy who really, I you know, I'm, I don't really enjoy things that just go on and on and on and on and on right. and where everything is always built into a cliffhanger ending. You know, the cliffhanger right. was something that George Lucas and, you know, basically reintroduced back into the world. And it seemed as if it had been, you know, it was something that was just relegated to soap operas before, right. you know, Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so, you know, that's what made TV kind of possible. I well, think. It's, um, it's been interesting to see how that the cliffhanger and the idea of like a freestanding movie no longer being that, but rather a piece in the larger architectonics yeah. of yeah. a franchise, how that is adopted by the multiplex where very often you'll watch a movie which is just front to back god awful (laughs) and then turn to the commentary surrounding it and what is being talked about is not you know the various glaringly visible failures but like this sets something up that could be pretty interesting to pay off yeah. Seven hours later. Right. Or, or, or 52 a, hours later. Yeah. Or just issues of politics in mm-hmm. all, in every sense of that word, where it's like, I feel like the fact that so much of, that there is so much writing about things like television and movies is not because it's being approached on an aesthetic level because people don't know what, like, quote unquote, good aesthetics are. It's being approached on this level of politics because everyone knows what 
good politics are, right? Sure. And we can right. all we can all agree on what that is. And if you don't agree, then maybe that says something about you that's not so nice. And maybe you really need to think about what you <laughs> who you are as a person. But it's it's so it's it's sad to me. Um, but I think to go back to what you were saying before about Matthew Weiner, yeah. like I think to sort of there is sort of this myth built up around what he did with that show and what that role is. And I think to do that is sort of to like write a history of film that's sort of based around the Blair Witch because it's, it's such an anomaly and it's such a, not a sustainable thing, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it seems Work like it's, it seems like it's repeatable, but it's a fundamentally unrepeatable thing. And in order to sort of like move ahead or sort of make sense of anything going forward, you have to acknowledge that it is. But that's that. always absolutely true. Yeah. And that's, Always the truth. And I mean, you know, that's in, in the movie that I made about Hitchcock and Truffaut when Kiyoshi Kurosawa says, I treated the book like a Bible, but I promised myself that I would never do what Hitchcock said because that's the error that you can make. Yes. It can appear that, you know, he's giving you a handbook. It's like Bresson's book appears to be, mm -hmm. here's, here's the way to make a movie. It's like, well, you try it. You yeah, know, exactly. you follow that book and make a movie and see what you get. You know, I mean, right. it's not, it, there is no such thing. Yeah. And I think that it's sort of like, I heard a story and it's a story that I, I've, I've always, I think about a lot. You know, the Dalai Lama was speaking in LA and uh, after he spoke, he took questions and somebody raised his hand and said, you know, uh, what's the quickest way to enlightenment? And the Dalai Lama went silent, thought about it, started crying and then got up and walked off stage and i mean you know it's a good answer because <laughs> for obvious reasons you know i don't want to get that we don't have to talk about but i mean you know it plays into what we're talking about here in relation to television and in relation to the remark that the guy made that i quoted at the beginning of my my piece you know which is you know when i was walking through the studio lot with this director and this guy said you know to a group of people we have a motto around here fuck the director and it is something that you wouldn't have hear, heard years ago but i think that the consciousness now is well you know now we've really got it down and we have a workaround and we don't have to deal with these creative types and their dithering and their personal problems and their personal you know themes and stuff like that we can you know get on with it and you know we've got the art part conquered it's like well no you don't you know a showrunner setting a template is not the same thing as somebody responding moment by moment to what's happening and making individual choices. It's just not. I mean, one of the most disheartening things that I, I've borne witness to in the last few years is some of the discussion that surrounded the reinvigoration, so-called, of the Star Wars franchise and this idea of, like, well, finally... Walt Disney and company have rescued these properties from George Lucas, and I could possibly give a shit less <laughs> about Star Wars. Yeah. However, the idea that there is something valorous and oh, yeah. wonderful about being able to get these properties away from the person who gave birth to them, it would be like saying, well, finally we've got you know, Sherlock Holmes away from that Conan Doyle jerk off and we can, you know, we can do Now one. we can do some really interesting shit with Moriarty. Yeah, some really oh my cool, God. Some really cool fan service. But <laughs> the fact that this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a press release. This was the actual cultural commentariat weighing in and saying, hey, we've, we've rescued it. It's, it's, it's a mindset I have a why lot did, of. Why did that in particular depress you? Uh, just, as if we need more of those movies, number one. Well, as if we need more <laughs> of those movies, but just uh, the idea that uh, we can we can rescue something from its creator, like, uh, and that that's a victory of some sort. I see. Yeah, yeah, I got it. On that note, we'll have to close. But before we do, it would be great if we could each go around and say a film that we've seen recently that we liked. I will say, uh, sort of speaking to. The idea of finding cinema in places that aren't necessarily the cinema uh, at MoMA PS1, the Mark Leckie show that's on right now, mm -hmm. and the presentations for his short pieces, uh, Dream English Kid and Fiorucci Made Me Hardcore, 
uh, I was absolutely bowled over by. And then to stick to a classical cinephile answer, uh, Kent mentioned Daisy Kenyon. Uh, Kino has a new Blu-ray knocking around, and my God, that movie is something else. It's yeah, it's it's unlike anything anything else in Hollywood in 1947. So those would be my endorsements. Mm-hmm. I looked at a movie that I had never seen before, also released by Kino, and that I'd always heard about by John Huston called The Unforgiven. And it's a movie that was based on a novel by Alan LeMay, who wrote The Searchers, and it deals with some similar stuff. And it was a notoriously plagued production. It was shot in Mexico. And there were people who were killed. Audrey Hepburn fell off a horse and injured her back. Burt Lancaster, you know, was the star and also one of the producers. And he kind of wanted to push it in a more commercial direction. The score by Dimitri Tiomkin, for some reason, maybe to save money, was recorded in with some orchestra in Rome. And it sounds like it was recorded in, you know, a church basement. Um, uh, and the ending is not satisfying. However, that movie is really potent. I was very, I was taken aback by it, actually. I don't want to, I won't talk about the plot and let people discover that for themselves. But that was a, that was a shock. This is actually something you, you posted online, Nick, which is uh, Nestor Amandros's Conduta Impropria, mm. which is given... Castro's recent demise after a lifetime of trolling the U.S. I think it's also people who have a hard time understanding how someone could possibly vote for Trump and Mike Pence, that they couldn't understand how they could just eschew all of the terrible, you know, someone who has groped women, who's confessed to groping women, who is uh, said terrible things about Mexicans and Muslims. Watch this and um, ask yourself how could someone who rounded up homosexuals and just people they didn't happen to like very much and forced them to into these work camps and then after international pressure just changed the names of what those camps were and continued doing this it's a good documentary Mm. take a look but thank you both for coming this was excellent thanks you've been listening to the film comet podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine film comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.